Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. I'm Paul J. In the new book, The Future is Public Towards Democratic Ownership of Public Services, the editors write in the introduction The COVID 19 crisis clearly demonstrates the disastrous effects of years of austerity, social security cuts, and public service privatization. The most glaring effect is on healthcare systems. In developed countries, these have undergone optimization and new public management reforms, as well as public staff hiring and investment freezes often push through post-2008 crisis fiscal consolidation measures. As consequences, both public and privatized healthcare services are now primarily run to minimize cost and generate profits. In developing countries, donor conditionalities have imposed sharp reductions in public spending, going as far as targeting public health workers' wages. The net result, unveiled by the COVID-19 pandemic, is the inability of healthcare systems run this way to deal with a health crisis where the severe shortages of medical equipment and staff have visibly translated into many more dead, especially among the most vulnerable and among health personnel. Privatization of public services now stands more discredited than ever before. The book describes how in cities across the world, including the United States, there's a movement to re-municipalize public services of all types, including water, energy, and more. Now joining us is one of the contributors to the book, Thomas Hanai. He's the research director of the Democracy Collaborative and co-director of the organization's Theory, Policy, and Research Division. Thanks for joining us, Thomas. Thanks for having me. First of all, give us a picture of why there are hundreds of cases, apparently, where cities have taken back control of various public services, and how has it worked out? Yeah, so in that book, uh, which is the culmination of years of research, um, the Transnational Institute, uh, which is based in Amsterdam, documented, I think, around 2,400 municipalizations and remunicipalizations across uh, 60 or so countries between the years 2000 uh, and now, 2020. And that's really, I think, the tip of the iceberg, given that they could not survey all of the countries in the world. It's only a, a small snapshot of the countries. And I think what this shows us is that there is a definite movement and indefinite energy to sort of reverse uh, the era of privatization, the era of neoliberalism. And all across the world and communities all across the world, people are reacting against the deficiencies of privatization and austerity and neoliberalism and trying to take back control of different parts of their economy and different parts of their uh, economic and different economic sectors. And the United States is, is no different. Um, you know, the United States is often considered to be the sort of beating heart of free market capitalism. Uh, but you actually have quite a, a large and robust sector of public ownership and municipal ownership, especially at the local government uh, level. And so while we didn't go full on for privatization, as did many parts of the rest of the world, we are actually still experiencing this uh, this pushback against privatization and austerity. 
Uh, some interesting examples are in the water sector in recent years. So in the 1990s and uh, early 2000s, there was a wave of, of water privatization in the United States. And it wasn't as big as in other countries. It was definitely not as big as in, say, Britain, where they privatized their entire water sector and turned it over to private corporations. But we did start to have some water privatizations here in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, and then after that, you know, because of the failure of a lot of, a lot of these privatizations, uh, most famously in Atlanta, Georgia, there was a massive uh, failure of privatization where they, after they turned over their local water system to a for-profit corporation, service quality went down, they had lots of oil water advisories, and eventually the city, under a lot of pressure from community groups and advocates, canceled its water privatization contract. And we started to see that. Uh, across various cities in, uh, in the United States and various communities um, in the 2000s and, and in the recent decade, especially since the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. Um, and so now you see whenever there's an attempt to do a water privatization in the United States, they're, they're very uh, opposed by community groups. And a lot of the water privatizations that have gone to referendums uh, have been rejected, um, often by wide, wide margins. I'm looking at some of the infographics in the book and the number of uh, remunicipalization uh, cases is really ex extraordinary. 156 in France, 411 in Germany. Uh, this includes not just uh, water, but energy companies, uh, schools, telecommunications in Norway, 42, Spain, 119. Uh, this is this quite, United Kingdom, 110. Uh, th it's a lot. Uh, and I, we hear almost nothing about this. Uh, generally, all we hear is just how efficient privatization is. But apparently, that's not how it turned out. No, definitely not. And uh, energy is a very interesting one. Uh, so you, sometimes you hear a little bit about Germany's energy transition or their renewable energy transition. Uh, they're sort of efforts to get off of coal and in some cases nuclear um, in and move to more renewable sources. And what we don't hear about often when, when people talk about Germany's renewable energy transition is that a lot of it consists of this effort to remunicipalize their electric utilities because a lot of them were privatized in the 1990s again, um, and now they've been taken back. And so a lot of those municipalizations that you see in Germany, that 400 or so that you mentioned, those are electric uh, utilities. And we're seeing a lot of that energy here now in the United States as well. Well, give us some more specific examples about, I know there was a fairly well-known case in Paris with the water. Uh, what, what happened in any of these examples? Just tell us a bit of the story. Sure. The, the Paris water uh, municipalization is quite interesting. In, in around 2010, uh, Paris uh, overturned their privatization and returned their water utility to uh, public ownership. And as a result, they've had a considerable success. I think the water rates have dropped significantly. They've installed drinking water fountains across the city. A colleague of mine over in the UK, Kat Hobbs, she has this great line um, because uh, the water, Paris water utility, not only have they installed, you know, free uh plain drinking water fountains. They've also installed fizzy uh, drinking water fountains. So she calls it uh, socialism with a sparkle over there in, in Paris. Um, but uh, they also have won number of awards for being uh, efficient and transparent and uh, participatory. Um, so they have a multi-stakeholder board uh, for the Paris Water Utility that includes city councillors, employee representatives, civil society representatives. Um, and some of those civil society representatives were actually drawn from a separate 
body called an observatory. So it's the Paris Water Observatory. And it's a citizen participation body um, that allows people or tries to enable people uh, to participate in the running of their water system. Uh, and they also have high heightened transparency. Uh, um, uh, sorry, I take that back. They also have heightened transparency uh, rules, uh, so they allow all people to be able to observe what's going on in the water utility, including uh, their financial statements. Uh, and I think in 2017 or so, they won a, an award from the United Nations for like high quality in, uh, in the areas of accountability and transparency uh, and integrity. The uh, energy companies, uh, that's a very profitable sector, and uh, one would think they're not very happy about getting uh, re-municipalized. Uh, where, where has that happened in the United States, and how much of a battle has it been? Yeah, the United States is, is quite interesting on, on municipalization because, to start with, we actually have a considerable number of publicly owned electric utilities in the United States. There are about 2,000 publicly owned uh, electric utilities here that, along with cooperatives, supply about 25% of the nation's electricity. Um, so a lot of communities, especially in rural communities and, and in the Midwest and the West, uh, have already have publicly owned utilities. So we have plenty of examples of places where um, these things work very well, often in very conservative or Republican areas. And so, you know, we, we can we can compare private utilities to public utilities in the United States in a way that you, you kind of can't in a lot of other sectors and a lot of other parts of the country. And, uh, and there have been, I think over the past 20 years or so, you know, I think there have been more municipalizations of electric utilities than there have been privatizations of, of U.S. electric utilities. That being said, it, it's not easy. These things are very hard uh, to municipalize. Uh, Boulder, Colorado has been trying for more than 10 years to municipalize their electric utility, which is run by a giant corporation called XL Energy. And XL has basically fought them every step of the way. They've had to have numerous referendums, public votes. They've had to go to the Public Utilities Commission and courts. And it's been a, it's been a huge fight. Uh, but it's being led by the leaders of uh, the city council, but also by climate and energy activists and youth movements in, in the city uh, trying to move that along. And who knows how it will turn out. Maybe they'll strike some deal and they won't actually uh, municipalize. But uh, it's increasingly being sought as an option, um, as a strategy by climate activists in particular across the United States. There are now campaigns underway in numerous jurisdictions, um, you know, especially in places like uh, Rhode Island, in Maine, uh, Chicago. Chicago, you know, various other places that are looking, and California especially, in response to the failures of PG&E and the fires um, that they've had there. Uh, there's big activist efforts and campaigns to uh, take over uh, and municipalize uh, electric utilities in the U.S. And in what's necessitating this? In what way does a public utility uh, energy company or water, but let's focus on energy, uh, how would it act differently than privately? And a privately owned one. Yeah, the benefits of public ownership in general is that it's a flexible ownership form. Um, you know, it's not inherently better or worse than any other ownership form, but it allows you or it allows the city or community uh, to determine what the priorities are for their enterprise or for their service. Uh, so for in the, in the instance of the energy utilities, uh, a lot of the drive to municipalize electric utilities is around renewable energy and around climate goals. And the large for-profit companies, they are very much constrained by their quarterly returns, by endless growth, by having to deliver uh, profit to their shareholders. Um, and they 
are very reluctant to do anything that interrupts that, that especially things that are more long-term or are in the long-term interests of people and planet. Uh, municipal utilities, on the other hand, belong to the people. So a municipal utility um, or a public enterprise of any form uh, can be tasked to whatever the people decide that one wants to be tasked to. So for instance, uh, one of the first utilities in the United States to go to 100% renewable uh, was uh, in Burlington, Vermont. It was uh, their publicly owned utility there. And that's because the people of Burlington, Vermont and the city leaders wanted to go to 100% renewable energy. So uh, they had control. Um, so it's very much about control and who has control. And so a publicly owned enterprise gives a community control over a very important asset uh, or service or, or enterprise. I wrote an article about who killed the Rodney Todd family. And it's the fifth year, fifth anniversary of the death of the Todd, Rodney Todd and his seven children. Um, he uh, couldn't afford the electric bill, even though he had a full-time job, but he was being paid minimum wage, lived in a small town in Maryland. And he got a propane heater and had it inside the house because people think it was so noisy, he didn't want to put it outside the house and wake up his neighbors. And it, the gas leaked. Uh, there was some kind of fumes, and Rodney and all seven children died one night. Um, th- would a public utility allow such a thing? Do they publicly own? Would they cut somebody off in winter? It's supposedly illegal in Maryland to cut someone off in the middle of winter. The, the excuse was that the meter he had wasn't an authorized meter, and for safety reasons. Uh, they had to take it out. But there's no evidence that Rodney put the meter there. Some people speculate it was the landlord. But whatever the power company, which in the final analysis actually is controlled by finance, uh, finance institutional investors, including BlackRock as one of the largest, uh, the, the company took no measures to make sure there was power, even if they thought the meter wasn't safe. Are you finding the publicly owned utilities are dealing with situations like this any better than the privately owned ones? Yeah, so yeah, that's a very tragic story and probably one that is relatively common in the United States, given the way that a lot of our public services are oriented towards profit and extraction. Um, the thing about the United States uh, is and public enterprises versus private enterprises in the United States, it's as I said, it's very much um, about control. Uh, so if you orient a publicly owned enterprise to sim- simply make profit uh, or to generate as much revenue as possible for the municipality, um, you're likely to replicate some of the same practices that exist in privately owned uh, enterprises and utilities. That was happening in Baltimore where the uh, city owned the water, but the uh, the bills they were charging for, for water and, and cutting off water for unpaid water bills, it was as bad as any private company would have done. Exactly. exactly. And so um, inherently, there, it's not better or worse. It's about the ability to get control to change those practices. And, and you do see in the evidence, especially in the academic literature, that, you know, publicly owned utilities, publicly owned enterprises are better on a lot of things. They're usually better on cost. Uh, they don't have a profit motive. Um, they're usually better on governance issues in terms of transparency and accountability and knowing what's happening within within the enterprise or the utility. Um, they're also better at, on climate change uh, and um, in, in many ways as well. They uh, there's um, 
there was academic literature by Mildred Warner on this about publicly owned utilities versus privately owned utilities. Let me add to the Baltimore story, which sort of strengthens your case. Um, because it was public, the community was able to uh, actively push back on the water pricing policies and get them changed. Uh, I think that the, they passed some measures that made it illegal, or, or or at least there was a policy that they wouldn't cut people off. Um, and I don't know how su- successful that would have been if it had been privately owned. Now, one of, the, one of the things, your chapter of the book, uh, you focus on the issue of the internet and broadband and publicly owned broadband initiatives. What's been happening in that? Yeah, yeah. In the United States, um, broadband internet has been probably the biggest sector of growth of public ownership in recent years and probably over the past decade. And in the past several years, there's been around 800 communities like towns, cities, counties, that have established what we call community-owned broadband networks. And of these, around 500 are straight up, are straight publicly owned. Um, the other 300 are, are cooperatives of some, some form or another. And there are, of these, around 150 have you know, really super fast networks, like one gigabit speed networks or, or higher. Uh, some even have 10 gigabit speed networks. And, and one of the leading examples that a lot of people know about is in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where the city in very early on, 2009, through their publicly owned electric utility, um, began operating a fiber network. And it was the first location in the US of any location to offer one gigabit speed service and it's subsequently upgraded to to 10 gigabit speed service and it's had incredible impact on their community. Some of the stats that we cited in the chapter is that it's directly responsible for adding around 2,800 new jobs and adding about a billion dollars to the local economy. Now, especially in rural areas or small towns and cities, this is an economic development strategy. Um, you know, you're seeing an outflow of population to larger cities. You're seeing all the economic development funding, you know, funnel to these larger jurisdictions and, and less, uh, rural areas and small towns and cities, uh, can compete in the 21st century digital economy. Uh, we're just going to see, you know, further concentrations of people and capital, um, in the United States and access to internet is, is absolutely crucial. Tell us more about the Chattanooga story because that's kind of remarkable. I know. The, the small amount that I have followed this story, the majors fight this like mad. I mean, this is, you know, AT&T's and uh, all the other big players in, in the Internet providing business. Uh, this is this is death to them. I mean, who would ever buy one of them if you have a public service at that kind of level? Yeah, exactly. And what we've seen in recent years, not so much lately, but in recent years has been what we call preemption laws being put in place uh, across the United States, not only in broadband, but in, in other areas as well. And this is essentially that the large corporations know that they can't win these battles at the local level. They lose the referendums. They're not well regarded when it comes to local service. So they sort of jump over the local level and they go straight to the state legislators uh, and the state legislatures um, where they have considerable power. Uh, and they put in place preemption laws, which essentially cut off local jurisdictions' ability to experiment with alternative models of ownership and different ways of doing economic uh, development. And these, these laws are passed at the federal level or state level? These, these laws are passed at the state level. So uh, in the case of broadband, 
there have been, you know, many, many states, I don't remember the exact number, but upwards of 15 states that have mostly conservative states, uh, that the states have passed restrictions on the ability for local governments uh, to set up their own internet networks or to expand their own internet networks. And so a lot of the energy around some broadband in recent years has been, okay, so now we need to go to the federal level, to the FCC um, and to Congress and try and get these preemption laws thrown out to allow local choice uh, to happen again um, at the municipal level. And so uh, President Obama supported getting rid of these preemption laws, uh, as had, um, you know, presidential candidates like Bernie uh, Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and, and so on and so forth. And legislation has been um, introduced in Congress uh, by Senator Cory Booker and, and others to get rid of these preemption laws, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, and essentially what the courts have said is that the FCC alone cannot get rid of these preemption laws. It's going to have to come through an act of Congress. The Supreme Court has said this? Uh, no, I think it was a district court um, that had ruled against the FCC during the Obama era um, and uh, and hasn't reached, hasn't gone up the, to the Supreme Court level. Guys, I, I think it's, it would be outrageous that you could have uh, laws that simply protect some big internet providers. Uh, but I guess this is the power of Verizon and such. Yeah, well, it's, and it's the same, and it's the same with things like fracking as well. There's been interesting, um, interesting things happening in places like Texas, where you know very conservative local communities don't want fracking to happen in their communities, and they've passed laws um, that say we don't want fracking. And then the state government of Texas says uh, local governments can't pass anti-fracking laws. Um, and have tried to preempt that. Um, and so there's been, it, it, it's interesting uh, in terms of the political dynamics as well, because a lot of these communities, these smaller communities are relatively conservative communities, but um, you know, their choice, their local um, self-determination is being taken away by the state legislatures. The uh, ones, the places where cities have been successful, how effective are the cities at running internet companies. In theory, it's pretty high tech and complicated business. Yeah, these have been very successful. Um, you know, there have been some failures and, and some places where things have reverted back to private ownership or there have been issues. Um, you know, one one was in near where I live in Virginia and in, in Bristol. Um, uh, but, you know, as a whole, they have been very successful. Um, you know, they're they're usually very well run. They're usually faster um, in many places. They're usually cheaper <laughs> in many places. Um, and uh, and there's different ways of setting them up, different types of partnerships. Uh, you know, they often, as I said, some of them are run through the uh, public uh, public electric utility. Um, some of them are run as standalone things. Some of them are basically the fiber networks are owned by the city and then the service is provided by a small ISP, internet service provider. Uh, sometimes they're cooperatives where basically a lot of small municipalities will get together to form a group that will provide this service because it, it's uneconomical for some tiny town or city to be able to do it uh, by itself. Um, sometimes there are what we call public-public partnerships whereby two or three or more public entities within the jurisdiction, like a, a port or a university or a, the local um, the local government will all get together to be able to provide service, uh, electric service, and run these networks. Uh, one of the chapters in the book, I think this one's by Hillary Wainwright, she talks about how it's not enough just to have the public ownership. And you mentioned as well, it's really about control, which means who has control and the nature of the state. Uh, the issue of who has control to the large extent, 
whether it's city level, state level, or federal level, it's really the financial sector that's so powerful and, and so dominates uh, every level of government, and including who's making economic policy, especially at the federal level. It's the same. Everyone talks about this revolving door of Wall Street and the Treasury Department and the Fed and so on. Um, the, the issue of public ownership, it seems to me, if as, as a piece of this issue of democratization, a critical piece is the development of public banking, that if we don't break the power of the financial sector, it's going to be very difficult to do much of anything else, given that the extent to which the financial sector can essentially blackmail at every level, and especially cities in terms of municipal bonds and, and so on. Uh, but public banking, I would think, is a real a real way to start pushing back on the power of Wall Street and, and create an alternative. And I'm talking more than retail banking. Like I know there's a lot of talk about postal banking, which is, I would think, a good idea. But doesn't there need to be a really thinking through how to create public banking on a scale that can actually push back against the massive uh, financial institutions who, who are, you know, just blindly pursue uh, you know, profit and there's nothing, they really can't do anything else. It's, it is what they are. It is what it is. It's, they are who they are. That is what the system is. Like in this article, who killed the Todd family, the power company, I think I mentioned ends up being owned by BlackRock, the largest financial asset company. I mean, they don't go out to kill the Todd family, but I guess it's collateral damage. I mean, their job is to maximize their, for their investors, the return, and it's the way the system works. You got to have a paradigm shift. And that shift, I think, has to do with public ownership and democratization. I know you're on, you advise on some, in some organizations on the question of public banking. So what, what's your vision of how we can move towards a vision of public banking on a, on a larger scale than maybe most people have been talking about? Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, I think one of the features of the neoliberal period has been these large-scale structural changes to the financial sector and its relationship to the economy as a whole, and specifically both the massive expansion of the financial sector and the consolidation and growth of, of financial institutions. And so, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people know uh, some of these trends around financialization uh, better than I do, But uh, and I won't get into it too much, but at least in terms of banking, you know, at times over the past couple of decades, uh, finance's share of total corporate profits have been anywhere between like 25 and 40%. And a lot of experts identify this increasing financialization of our economy as one of the root causes of a lot of our economic dysfunction. And, and on top of this, the financial sector as a whole has also been seeing incredible con consolidation um, over this period and the big banks have been getting bigger and bigger. And I think between the 80s and early 2000s, like 7,000 banks disappeared um, through mergers and acquisitions uh, prior to the financial crisis. And so I think that public, public banking or, you know, various ways to address financialization, but public banking is definitely one of the, the key ones. Um, and, uh, and it's one that's been getting a lot of attention lately in the United States and, and around the world. Uh, especially, um, there's a very, very vibrant public banking movement in the United States. A lot of people in the rest of the world are really envious of, of the public banking movement here and, and a lot of the successes that are starting to happen. Um, especially in places like California, where they've actually passed legislation at the state level that, um, will enable localities to set up public banks. Um, I think we, 
we are, we sometimes with public banks, uh, forget how prevalent they actually are, uh, in, in the world. Um, my, for instance, my friend Thomas Marois has in, and he's in the book as well, um, that you've mentioned. He's shown that figures produced by international organizations like the World Bank and the OECD consistently underestimate and misrepresent the value of public banks. Um, so like they say, public banks have something like two to five trillion in asset, but assets, but, uh, Tom's research has shown that there are in fact like almost 700 public banks around the world and they have assets as much as 40, around 40 trillion dollars. And when you add in multilaterals, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, central banks, and so on, you know, public finances amount to around 74 trillion. And so public banks exist. They've always exist, always existed. Uh, despite efforts to delegitimize them, um, they're very prevalent around the world and we need to look to what's happening around the world and we need to expand the public banking sector, uh, beyond, uh, you know, beyond retail banking, beyond, uh, some of the small scale banks. I think they're very important. Things like the Sparkhausen Banking Network, the savings banks in Germany, where there's three, three or four hundred, um, of these local savings banks, uh, beyond even things like the Bank of North Dakota, which is our longstanding hundred year old, pretty famous public bank here in the United States. But we need to think, we need to think bigger. I mean, there are some very, very big public banks around the world. You know, Germany's KFW group is, is huge. It's the you know, state bank of India. Um, there's, uh, you know, Russia has a public bank. Italy has a public bank. Brazil has a public bank. Uh, you know, the British government still owns a significant chunk of World Bank of Scotland, which is a giant bank, uh, that they bailed out during the last financial crisis and, and retained ownership. So, um, so public banks, um, can, Absolutely, hundred uh, percent play various roles in, in the economy and in, in things that we need to do. Um, one of the really interesting uh, parts of public banking is, is linking public banking up to the renewable energy transition and dealing with the with the climate crisis. Um, and it's actually becoming acceptable um, around the world, especially in these international uh, institutions and international development, to to look to public banks to basically take on the financing of renewable energy that the private sector just doesn't want to take on and, and isn't going to ever be able to take on. Um, one interesting example that Tom points out is that there's a, there's a hydropower company in Norway that's uh, municipally owned. So it's a publicly owned hydropower company. A lot of I think 14 or 15 different municipalities in different parts of, uh, of the country own this hydropower company. Uh, and this hydropower company wanted to uh, embark on a process of building environmentally sustainable power generation uh, plants um, as part of the country's efforts to become carbon neutral. And so they linked up with the Nordic Investment Bank, which is a giant uh, public bank, to be able to provide the financing that was necessary for that completion. Um, there's, uh, there's another one in Costa Rica, Banco Popular. And this gets to that other part of the question that you were talking about, about democratization. Um, so not only in terms of addressing the finance question, but also addressing this question of how we get control and how we democratize publicly owned enterprises. And so Banco Popular is, I think, the third largest bank in, in Costa Rica. Um, it was originally a development bank, um, but it, over time, it's become the, one of the leading ecological lenders uh, in the country. And it's a quasi-cooperative public bank. So they have, a, I think, a 290-person general assembly where they draw representatives from all across the country, different economic sectors, workers, and so on and so forth. And that general assembly elects up 
I think, four members to the, the board of the bank. And then the state, the Costa Rican government, appoints another three members. And they do a popular planning and consultation process every certain number of years. And through that process, they've really focused in on social benefit and the climate transition. Yeah, I think the climate movement and the movement for public banking and the people in the streets demanding control of the police, um, all these various things really need to merge into some very clear demands about what kind of society, what kind of economy, what kind of politics we're going to have. And not in the distant future, because there is no distant future if you listen to what the scientists are telling us uh, the leading, uh, the lead environmental scientist, climate scientist in Australia was just quoted recently. And essentially the science is now, we're, we're definitely the way, we're going to hit 1.5 degrees warming above pre-industrial levels. Uh, we are going to hit two degrees. There's nothing being done now that's going to prevent us hitting two degrees. Uh, and once we hit two, it's every likelihood that the kind of tipping points feedback loops and so on are very unpredictable. And, and I think the only thing that's been clear in the pattern of prediction is the scientists always seem to, I, I shouldn't say all, but most, to err on a, on a conservative side that winds up being wrong. And the speed of the process seems to be faster than, than the scientists thought. I, I mean, it's very likely from what I'm reading, I'm no scientist, but from what I'm reading, it's very likely we're going to be hitting uh, as much as two degrees by 2050, maybe even 2040, uh, and, and unless something radical is done. And, and something radical in being done in the United States, but I think it's true for Canada and it's true for you know all the advanced capitalist countries. If the power of finance isn't broken over the politics, finance is incapable of doing this. Uh, like BlackRock, the, the big uh, investment company, I wrote an article about this that's on our website. You know, they made all kinds of declarations about how they were going to go green and they were making green sustainability one of their criteria for investment. And they were pulling back from coal. And it's all BS when, when you look at what they're really doing. The, the commitment of BlackRock to get out of coal was they wouldn't invest in any company that I think the number was that 25% of their revenue uh, came from coal. They wouldn't put any money into them. And now, And first of all, most of BlackRock investment is in big index funds, and they don't pick and choose specific, specific stocks. So if there's a coal-producing uh, uh, entity that's in the index, they will continue to invest. Now, yeah, in their discretionary money, they may not invest in uh, companies that uh, do 25% of the revenue from coal. But even that's a bit of a scam. I don't want to have the detail on my fingertips, but people can go read the article on the website. Some of the companies that are the largest coal producers also have lots of other sources of revenue. They're not just solely coal. So the coal component of their revenue could be easily, in one case in particular, which is one of the larger coal producers uh, in the country, in the United States, the coal is less than 25%, but they're still one of the largest coal producers. So BlackRock can keep putting money in. My point is BlackRock can't do otherwise, only government and only government that has uh, pr enormous pressure on it from a mass movement with clear objectives in this direction and 
uh, Congress that has a lot of progressive representatives and so on. And and the key to it all, I think, is at least one of the keys is there has to be public banking on a large scale. It may be diversified. It could be at the level of regional states getting together and creating them, um, municipalities creating them at some level, federally creating them, because you you do need to be concerned about concentration of ownership to, into too few public hands, because that can also tend to towards not being anything to do with democratization. You can have kind of Mussolini kind of state and then create some public banks. Um, but I, this conversation about public banking breaking the political power of finance in order to save the planet, because it seems to me we do it or we perish. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that for public banking, there has to be both a bottom up and a top down strategy um, to establish public banks. Uh, so from the bottom up strategy, we need a mass movement in our cities and our states, uh, as is happening in California and other parts of the country to establish uh, local city public banks uh, so that we can establish independence of our communities from Wall Street banks. Uh, we need state banks like the Bank of North Dakota that acts to sort of backstop a thriving uh, and diverse local ecosystem of community banks. Uh, but then we need to also work from the top down as well. And so we need when there are crises like in 2008, 2009, or even the more, most recent crises, um, we need to use those crises to be able to intervene and to take ownership and take control over the financial sector, uh, especially if we're providing, you know, boatloads of free money and, and, and credit and, and uh, bailout funds for these financial institutions. We should be uh, taking ownership stakes and equity stakes in these uh, corporations and bringing them back under public control. So I think there's definitely a bottom-up and, and top-down strategy. And I think it also needs to be there's also a strategy I think that needs to happen in terms of the climate crisis, a strategy around uh, nationalizing the fossil fuel industry um, outright. I think what we're seeing is that there is, um, there's a, a double-edged sword coming. Essentially, we're either going to have a climate crisis or we're going to have a giant financial crisis because uh, the there's a giant carbon bubble, trillions of dollars in financial markets, uh, essentially the value of of um, fossil fuel assets that are locked into our financial markets that if they're not burned, they're going to create a financial crisis. And if they are burned, uh, these fossil fuel deposits, we're going to have a, a climate crisis. Uh, so we really need to have some sort of massive intervention there to essentially take over, buy out, nationalize uh, these fossil fuel companies and their reserves and, and keep those reserves in the ground. And I think uh, some, some colleagues of mine have been working on this, Carla Skanger Santos and Johanna Bazua and, and others have been working on this for many years. And it was a, you know, a very fringe idea for, for many years. But then since the financial crisis and the rapid drop in, in the evaluation of oil companies and, and the collapse of oil prices, it's become a very, um, talked about issue, especially in the climate movement is dealing with these supply side issues. And, and now would very much be the time for the government to use its financial uh, power. I mean, it seems to me that the issue comes down to something that's rather straightforward. Assuming Biden is elected, um, a mass movement and, and all the progressive economists and everybody have to get on the page of a few very clear and specific demands. And one of them has to be the uh, the nationalization, and it can be done very easily. You don't have to expropriate, just buy the shares. Because as long as the federal government is going to say, okay, no more free money to you, Bank of America, 
no more free money to you, X, Y, Z banks. Uh, and uh, it, it, you know, the government will be able to buy the shares of these banks for a song because the, the, they don't let, they're not going to last without public money. Uh, they, and it goes for BlackRock. The stock market would go so down the toilet if the Fed isn't propping it up the way it is now. Uh, then the government can say the same thing to BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard. These are the big asset management companies that the th- just the three of them control. I think they're up around $15 trillion of assets under their management. And those three companies, along with other similar type of companies and financial institutions, control 90% of the S&P 500. That means just about everything that's on the stock exchange. They wind up controlling the votes of who gets to be the management and what the, the policies of these companies are. Um, just by the government uh, buying, controlling shares of a few of these big asset management companies, uh, there'd be enormous uh, what amounts to nationalization of sorts, but focusing on the finance sector to begin with. I mean, this this all needs to be worked out in more detail. But But if this isn't done... We're we're done. <laughs> it's not a not, not a far off notion. Wouldn't it be nice someday in the future? I just don't see how we deal with the climate crisis. And let me add to that. I know it just complicates the issue, but it's it's also true and threatening. The issue of the uh, massive new expenditure on nuclear arms, uh, the the uh, trillion dollars over the next uh, what is it? 20 years or something. Uh, It's extremely dangerous, but it all reduces itself to the same question, like who's in control, who has power, and and, and who is this uh, politics and economy going to be run for? But who owns all the major, 12 major manufacturers of nuclear weapons? Well, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street. It's the same financial institutions now are the, essentially the controlling uh, interest uh, of just about everything, including Lockheed Martin and Boeing, and let me say also the New York Times and uh, Time Warner that own CNN, almost all the private media. It goes on and on. Uh, we better start all talking about this because in, if in the next four years, uh, assuming it's Biden, if it's Trump, then then this isn't the same conversation at all. <laughs> then we batten down the hatches. I don't have any big expectations about Biden at all, given his history. But at least maybe there'll be a conversation about this, but only if there's a mass movement with clear objectives, of the one per, some of which you know, you're suggesting, I'm suggesting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the crisis that we're currently in and, and things that you mentioned as well, it really just shows that we have the ability, we have the power of government can intervene and it can spend money on things that it finds important. Uh, it's just a question of, of what it finds important. And so the Federal Reserve in particular appears to have learned like some pretty significant lessons from the 2008 and, you know, crisis. And according to a lot of observers, the Fed acted, you know, much more quickly and decisively this time to prop up the financial system when it became clear that the COVID-19 pandemic was going to have a pretty massive impact on the economy. And it's launched a lot of new programs and, and legal workarounds that it never even contemplated during the Great Recession. I think um, uh, Jerome Powell just recently said that the Fed had crossed a lot of red lines that it had never crossed uh, before. And, and so, you know, once again, just like in 2008, we've 
we've responded to a major economic crisis by using public funds to prop up the profits of private private financial institutions and corporations. And so once again, profits have been privatized and losses have been socialized. And, and granted, the circumstances leading to this crisis are very different, but the simple fact um, of the matter is, is that our financialized and, and largely privatized economic system is really incredibly vulnerable and incapable of operating for a long time without implicit and explicit support from the public sector. And so to me, I think this is ample evidence that we need to restructure our financial system under public control so that it works to support the real economy rather than like casino-like speculation. So it serves public good uh, rather than private accumulation. All right. Thanks a lot, Thomas. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.